Hello and welcome to Fragments of Fear, a podcast about the lesser discussed Jali, their directors, actors and screenwriters. My name is Peter Udemstad and with me as always my co-host Rachel Nesbitt. How are things with you, Rachel? Um, yeah, very well, thank you. I've just been offered a new project to work on this week, so I'm very excited about that. Oh, that's cool. Anything good? <laughs> uh, yeah, something really good. I can't reveal it just yet, um, but I'm excited. But though I'm saying it's really good, I feel like it's going to be one of those things where people find out what is and they're like, oh, is that it? Because it's not me. It's not like it, it's not something that's really obscure or isn't seen a release of some kind. Yeah. As far as I should probably go, but yeah, it's a cool project to work on. Oh, excellent. I'm really happy for you. Thank you. I will review that all in the future. So how well, are you at the minute? Uh, I'm doing well. Um, yeah, I haven't been doing much, have I? <laughs> I haven't got anything exciting to say. It's still January. It's, you know, we're all quiet in January. There's not much going on. And no, it's not the most exciting month, is it? No, we're through it now, though. Yeah. You've been watching anything good since we since we last spoke? Uh, I, this sounds really terrible, but I've not actually done a lot of watching at the minute, just because I've been trying to go on one of those January health kicks and not sit about too much so I've been like on my exercise bike and starving myself and going on long walks and whatever but I have obsessively watched The Crown this month which probably all sounds quite surprising for someone that's supposed to be really into like their horror cinema but I've really been enjoying that so like if I get a spare moment to watch something I'll just sit down and watch my um <laughs> The Crown um but it's really right, interesting yeah, yeah. nice bit of social history and things so what about you? I'm sure you've been watching something a bit more um, in line with the podcast. Well, you know how, how you always seem to have like some blank spots in, in certain areas or directors that you've missed or whatever. I've been meaning to watch um, the Van Luton films forever. The only one I'd seen up until now was Cat People. I think it might have been in the Patreon pod I mentioned The Seventh Victim, but I've watched... Um, I Walked With a Zombie and Curse of the Cat People and The Leopard Man as well. Oh, they're excellent films, so um, glad to finally catch up with those. And then, of course, I've been looking forward to to Uncut Gems as well, which premiered on Netflix on Friday, I think it was. I really enjoyed that. Oh, so you got a chance to watch it? Yeah, I watched it first thing on Friday. Oh, that's good, because I know you said you were going to watch it, but I wasn't sure if you'd actually got round to it yet. If I managed to stay awake on a Friday night. <laughs> I yeah, know, I yeah. did, actually. <laughs> it's a film where it would be quite difficult to fall asleep. Yeah, it suddenly draws you in, and it's quite stressful in a way, in a really good way. Have you seen Good Times? Uh, no, so I haven't. I haven't. It's another highly recommended film. There are some similarities between the two films, but both of them really worth seeking out. It's funny that you were saying it was quite tense because um, someone I know was watching it with their Fitbit on and you could see like their heart jumping <laughs> in different bits. You know, this is what my heart rate looks like during the film. It was something crazy. I was like, I really need to see that. <laughs> I could well imagine I mean losing losing a couple of pounds just from the stress of watching that film <laughs> that's good that's perfect for January see I'm on my exercise bike and you're sweating it all yeah. off watching un- uncut gems <laughs> yeah I should probably be on the exercise bike as well probably a little bit more effective no I just keep watching uncut gems it'll be fine <laughs> yeah and we normally do a little roundup of newly announced releases and the big news of course this evening is that Danger Diabolic has finally been announced by um, Shout Factory which is crazy because I think we've been waiting for that for god knows how long now and I kind of resigned myself to it not happening and then I saw your tweet only like half an hour ago because I've been I don't know what I've been doing but yeah that's so exciting. It's one of those films that would really benefit from having an upgrade to Blu-ray because obviously the visuals are so important in that film. Yeah because it's just it's so gorgeous visually and that's just a normal death so I can't imagine what it'll look like when it's in HD. The DVD's not bad but it's obviously not nowhere near as good as it can be so I think that's out in May I believe so we'll have to wait a little bit. Well, hopefully it's got lots of nice extras on it as well. I think that would benefit from a really nicely put together um, presentation of extras. It certainly would. They haven't announced anything yet, so we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, I'm sure I'm sure some good people will be on it, or I hope they'll be on it. Yeah, hopefully. Not that many Jali, really, that have been um, announced since the last episode. I thought I'd mention that Filmart released Revolver uh, late last year, and it was somewhat uncertain if it had any English options or not but it does have uh, an English language track you can safely go ahead and order that if you haven't done so already and if you've not seen it I would highly recommend it that's one of my kind of favorites in the genre it's incredible it's really really wonderful stuff so I'd yeah 
I buy it. Yeah, because it's got Fabio Testi in it. Yeah, yeah, everything and Oliver Reed and everything about it's just it's wonderful. And the score is one of my favorites as well. It's something really special. And Fillmore's are releasing uh, Street Law as well that's so that's an upcoming release uh obviously not charlo but um hope that will have english options but the interesting news from film art is that they're doing two new 2k restorations of two as of yes unnamed jolly uh, which will be two high definition world premieres so that sounds pretty interesting very intriguing i, I can't wait to find out what they are i really hope there's some good titles which i'm sure they yeah. will be because of course it's if it's something we've not seen yet like i mean when when i say something we've not seen yet something we've not seen in 2k yeah so um we'll keep you posted on that obviously and the other one that i think we've mentioned before is uh le chakifum release of umberto lens's knife of ice which has been confirmed to have an english language track so that will obviously be a must-have release yeah i mean that's really exciting because as we've talked about before um we're starting to see the carol baker jolly um, appear on blu-ray now um so hopefully by the end of the year people that are unfamiliar with them will have had the opportunity to go away and buy these official um releases and discover these films and i think it'll add to a whole new appreciation for them so it's very yeah. exciting and it's it's a, it's a nice little film that one it's not mentioned as much as people talk about the trilogy and obviously Knife of Ice is a Jalo and it's the fourth one but for some weird reason it seems to kind of be categorized separately but yeah it follows on it's got some of the same themes and ideas present and another great performance by Anne Baker so yeah highly recommended and then we've got the Vinegar Syndrome their Forgotten Jalo box set is due out in I think it was April or possibly May so not too far off to find out that what the titles in that one will be. Yeah, I'll have to check up with Brad and see if he's got a date for when they're going to get announced because I'm getting quite impatient trying to work out what they'll be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'd be good. Another thing that people should miss is film historian Roberta Curti's uh, Blood and Black Lace monograph that's just been released on Devil's Advocates. Uh, which is definitely worth picking up as well. And it's only like a tenner, I think. So um, make sure you grab that. And before we discuss this episode's film, and we'd just like to give a special thank you to our new patrons who very kindly pledged their support to Fragments of Fear. Um, so thank you to Dare, Michael McKenzie, Sean, Jonathan Fernley, and Adam Donnelly. Uh, we're very happy to have you as our new January patrons. And a big thank you to everyone who continues to support us over at Patreon. Uh, we're honestly so grateful you're helping us improve the quality of the podcast immensely or will be and to provide um, additional material um, I had an absolute blast uh, recording our Door into Darkness bonus episode last month and I personally felt that it really allowed us to shine a light um, on an aspect of our gentle's career that's often ignored so um, so thanks to um, the people that support us on Patreon we've been able to do that so yeah thank you very much so if you're interested in listening to our bonus content and want to pledge your support to the podcast um, you can head on over to patreon.com forward slash fragments pod for more details and again absolutely no pressure to we're just happy to have you and um, listening to us yeah so thank you very much and if this is the first time you're listening to us you might want to know that we discuss all aspects of the films featured so there will be spoilers about the murder clinic featured throughout the episode if you're sensitive about that kind of thing um, with that said it's time to start talking about this episode's films. Rachel, do you want to tell us why we've chosen the film that we're going to talk about? Yep, of course. Um, so the film we've chosen for episode five of Fragments of Fear is The Murder Clinic, aka La Lama Nel Corpo by Elio Scardamaglia, a Jago released in 1966. This is no ordinary house. Within these walls live madness and murder. For this is a house of unspeakable horror. This is the murder clinic. And although we've previously explored a 1960s show on the podcast with Umberto Lenzi's So Sweet, So Perverse, um, which came out in 1969, we felt we'd be remiss if we didn't explore a Jago from earlier in the 1960s that led into the more traditional Italian Gothic horrors of the mid-20th century. Now, um, Peter, in our introductory episode, um, you eloquently discussed the various strains of the Shelley of the 60s, and you cited the gothic-styled shallow amongst the York thrillers and more traditional whodunits of the decades. Um, and the Murder Clinic is very much an example of the gothic shallow strain. The film came out in the infancy of the shallow as the established genre that we see it as now, so this is why we see quite a lot of variety in the shallow of this period. Um, you might actually hear people refer to these 60s films, Barbavis thrillers, as prototype shallow, 
uh, simply because they feel somewhat removed from what people are familiar with in the genre. So it's perhaps fair to say that the Italian thriller films of the 1960s uh, lent into other genres or other styles of cinema that were prominent at the time. They were less constrained by the established tropes of the genre that took hold at the start of the 1970s after Argento rose to prominence. Which brings us to The Murder Clinic, uh, which is very much a 1960s thriller um, indebted to the gothic horror cinema of the era. So here we're seeing the influence of other Italian directors working in the 1950s and 60s in the gothic horror, such as Mario Bava and Riccardo Frida. The Murder Clinic is obviously indebted to Frangi's Eyes Without Face, Frida's I Vampiri and Bava's Blood and Black Lace, but also his earlier gothic horrors such as The Whip in the Body and Kill Baby Kill. Uh, we see this gothic influence in terms of historical setting, characterization of certain individuals, as well as in many of the visuals. Um, so think of the images conjured by gothic horror, flimsy nightgowns, candelabras, isolated manor houses, flaming torches, etc, etc. Um, and you can see all of these visual signifiers in the film. But also, as we'll talk about later, um, these traditionally gothic images or tropes are mixed in with elements um, that we would consider as touchstones of the shallow. Um, so straight edge razors, a murder weapon, leather gloves, a central murder mystery with red herrings and so forth. So the murder clinic is an interesting title as it comes at a time when the gothic horror was waning in popularity and the shallow was coming to prominence and making this somewhat of a hybrid of the two genres or where the two genres of horror um, intersect. And that signifies a change in cinematic trends at the time. But of course, elements of the Gothic have always remained within the shallow, despite its swing towards more modernist ideas. And we often talk about the genre in relation to its literary origins. And so it's worth keeping in mind that the shallow of the 1970s are just as indebted to the Gothic work of Edgar Allan Poe as they are to the novels of Agatha Christie. I mean, you touched on why this is an interesting giallo and why it's worth talking a bit more about. I suppose we'll continue. And normally at this point, I'd spend some time talking about the director of the film. But in this case, it proves to be somewhat difficult because, as you said, the film has been sort of historically credited to Elio Scadamaglia, a Numbering-born producer who, was, who produced a number of films uh, directed by Michele Lupo, for example, and he was also one of the producers for Mario Bava's The Whip in the Body. According to his filmography on, on the notoriously incorrect IMDb, The Murder Clinic was his sole credit, but according to Ernesto Gastaldi, he claims the film was really shot by Leonello De Felice, and De Felice directed several features in the 1950s, and as well as written the novel that the film is partly based on, so it doesn't seem unreasonable to assume that this was the case. According to some sources, De Felicis shot the majority of the film and the two had a falling out, leaving Scadamaglia to shoot the few remaining scenes and claim the credits. But either way, most of De Felicis' 50s output will be of very limited interest to the audience of this podcast. So I thought we could talk a little bit about Ernesto Gastaldi instead, if if you think that's a good idea. I think that's a great idea. I think people will be far more interested in hearing about Gastaldi um, than Scarlett. Yeah, I, I think so too. And as we mentioned in the So Sweet, So Perverse episode, that uh, Luciana Martina had been an important person in the development of the genre. And I think it's fair to say that Ernesto Gastaldi is another one of these somewhat overlooked or unsung architect of the genre. We've already discussed several of his films on the podcast. He wrote not only Jelly and Gothic Horror, but he wrote Peplum, Westerns, Eurus by Poliziotesky, Post Apocalypse, and Ghost wrote scripts and treatments for Elio Petri's The Tenth Victim and Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in America. So he's he's done a lot, Signor Gastaldi. He was born on September 10th, 1934 in Graglia-Vercetti in northwest Italy. He was working as a bank clerk when he started filming with a group of friends in the early 1950s. One of the first films was entered into a festival for amateur filmmakers where it won first prize and Gastaldi was given the opportunity to attend the Centro Sperimentale Cinematografica in Rome where he studied direction and screenwriting with classmates such as Antonio Tonino Valeri and Giuliano. Carnimeo before graduating in 1957 and he went on to work as a ghostwriter for Ugo Guerra uh, writing more than 20 scripts and this is how we got to know Luciano Martino who worked in the same capacity for Guerra and Gastaldi was a big fan of thrillers and his graduation project had been a thriller called La strada che portana lontana 
the road to a distant door. It was a student project, obviously, with limited funds, which meant that they shot without sound and no money for post-sync, so the film had to be dubbed live every time it was screened. And Gastaldi dreamed of becoming an author, really, and saw screenwriting as a way of making a living. And so, as I mentioned, during the late 50s, he ghostwrote scripts for mostly comedies and <clears throat> some other genres. At the time, the success of Hammer's Horror of Dracula in Italy led, had led to a boom of gothic horror. And he wrote several scripts in the genre. The first gothic script that was filmed was Renato Polselli's The Vampire and the Ballerina in the 1960s. But several more were filmed in quite quick succession in the early 60s. Werewolf and a Girl's Dormitory, which has just been released by Severin. The Horrible Dr. Hitchcock, Barbers the Whip and the Body and The Long Hair of Death. And his first fray into the thriller genre was A. Comasasino which was written as a stage play and won an award and was produced on stage in 1960 before later being filmed by director Angelo Dorigo in 1966. Gastaldi made his directorial debut with Libido in 1964. I'm sure it's a film that we'll return to at some point in the future, but it was one of the first jally, and even though it was set to present times, it's quite easy to tell that it was inspired by the gothic genre with setting in an old villa with dark corridors and pent-up sexual frustrations and perversions and libido was instrumental in leading the genre from gothic horror and bridging the gap to to what we now know as as jello the murder clinic was another one of, of these titles that helped sort of bridge the gap apparently the title la lama nel corpo the knife in the body had been used for the whip in the body during pre-production but it was later changed and brought back here and the screenwriting credits for the murder clinic are listed as julian berry martin hardy and robert williams which is really ernesto gastaldi luciano martino and leonel de Felice. Like in most cases, it was Gastaldi who wrote the script on his own, and in this case, Leonello de Felice had written the source material, and Luciano Martino uh, probably not that involved in, in the script writing, at least according to Gastaldi. And he would later, of course, go on to write many successful and, and beloved jelly as the genre became increasingly popular, and many of them ended up being produced by Luciano Martino. So The Sweet Body of Deborah, So Sweet, So Perverse, The Forbidden Photos of Lady Above the the strange mice of Mrs. Ward, the case of the scorpion's tail, death walks on high heels, all the colours of the dark, the case of the bloody iris, your vices are strange. No, your vices are strange. <laughs> I can't even remember what it's called. <laughs> your vices are locked room. <laughs> yeah, your your vices are locked room, and only I have the key. Death walks at midnight, torso puzzle, and uh, the killer is still among us. Veritable Hall of Fame lineup there. What do you think it is that appeals so much about Castaldi's screenplays? Why why is his films so loved? Um, I think he's just incredibly talented at taking a central idea and writing a really effective murder mystery around it um, that translates well to screen like he seems to know what works like yeah. obviously in a written capacity but yeah he can foresee how that would be on the big screen and I think like we've touched upon this before but I find his characters just to be a bit more developed and engaging than perhaps those of another writer and yeah we've previously discussed the effectiveness of his female characters so yeah for the most part I think his films are just incredibly well plotted and they work for the most part don't yeah. they? And we always, we always get a nice payoff with the red, with some great red herrings and things like that. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, he seems to be it seems to be quite important for him that the central mysteries actually work and that that is not cheating in the way that he feels that Argento cheats by having this forgotten detail that the audience can't possibly know about. And like you say, I think he his characters are way above average in terms of the genre. I also think he it's interesting because we discussed some of the aspects that, that I think Luciano Martino was instrumental in bringing. To the genre with a with a jet set and and that sort of thing and i think castaldi is responsible for some of the tropes that people often think about when Jalia mentioned i mean it's not solely responsible obviously but i think a lot of what i guess we would call the psychosexual elements were introduced by gastaldi because if you look at his his gothic films with the whip and the body the horrible dr hitchcock there's those early 1960s featured fairly well not explicit elements but explicit ideas in terms of sadomasochism and necrophilia and and some of those themes would obviously be later be reused in his 1970s jelly as well so important to shine a light on Gastaldi's work as a writer and how instrumental he was um, to the shallow and yeah like you said some of the tropes that were involved especially that psychosexual element which made perfect sense when you said it, it does highlight um how important his work was to the genre which we know anyway but when you especially even when you read out how many films he was involved in I think we sometimes forget 
how prolific he was in yeah. the genre and it's remarkable i know there's obviously other figures like jordana sacchetti and things but um you mean you think how many scripts they actually yeah. wrote phenomenal in such a short period of time and as you said how effective they all yeah. were um for the most part they're really well done so um so many, so many yeah. classics from from his pen and i think it's one of those unfortunate things where the directors always tend to get more of a look in than producers or um, screenwriters but I think it's really important that on this podcast then you're shining a light on the likes of Gianno Martino and Ernesto Gastaldi and yeah. um, because they deserve you know a lot of respect and acknowledgement for the work that they've done in the genre yeah I think as we go on there will be plenty of other people that that deserves to be highlighted for their for their services to the Jalo genre yeah I don't think we're going to be running out anytime no, soon neither do I <laughs> So as always, I'll give a brief synopsis. So set in Morley, Norfolk in 1870, the murder clinic is the gothic tale of the talented doctor Robert Vance, a man who runs a psychiatric facility for those afflicted with various mental ailments. In between tending to his patients, Dr. Vance conducts his own medical experiments in an attempt to successfully find a way to carry out a skin graft on his disfigured sister-in-law. But his work is interrupted when a hooded killer begins stalking the clinic, dispatching his patients. Are the crimes related to the facility's latest addition, Nurse Mary, new guest and criminal Giselle, violent schizophrenic patient Fred, or someone far closer to home? So let's go through some of the main players in the film. And as you said, Robert Vance is um, the person running the clinic, and he's played by William Berger, or Bill, as he was called. Berger was born in Innsbruck in Austria in 1928, and he spent his first 12 years in Germany just before just before the war. And he was apparently actually a member of the Hitler Youth. But when the Second World War broke out in September 1939, the family was holidaying in Italy, and they travelled across Europe, making their way to Lisbon, where they managed to get on a boat to the United States. And the family made a life for themselves in New York. And Berger studied engineering. And he was also a really talented athlete who was in the tryouts for the Olympic team on 1500 meters. But he didn't make the final selection. He was drafted to the army and was sent off the, to the Korean War. When he got back, he got involved in the New York theater scene. And his first marriage went through a somewhat rocky patch, apparently, and the family with their two daughters relocated to California in order to make a fresh start. And he worked on a few TV series in California before returning to New York, where he met his future wife, Carol Lobravichu, a member of the artistic Jet Set. And the two started a love affair and spent their early years of the 1960s in a sort of a sort of proto-hippie lifestyle with quite a lot of sexual and drug experimentation. They became disillusioned with the New York theatre scene and left for Rome in the early 1960s, where Bill had already appeared in a few small roles. First lead was in Mario Maffei's Ringo's Big Night, one of the many Ringo clones that was made in the wake of Duccio Tesari's Epistle for Ringo. The murder clinic was actually his second lead. We'll return to Berger a little bit later on. Another prominent character in the murder clinic is the well-heeled and morally questionable character of Giselle, who's played by the French actress Francois Prévost. Parisian-born Prévost is best known for her work in the French Nouvelle Vague, in which she worked under the likes of Jacques Rivette and Pierre Cast. Um, she later sought work in Italy and appeared in a variety of productions, such as De Sica's The Condemned of Altona. Prévost came from a rather interesting family. Her father Jean was a successful writer and a resistance fighter during World War II, sadly dying in a German ambush in 1944. And Prevost's mother was also in literary circles and was an accomplished writer as well as co-founder of Marie Claire magazine. Um, Prevost later became an author herself when she wrote a book about her struggle with cancer, um, which was later adapted into screenplay by French film director Yannick Bellin entitled Naked Love, in which Prevost collaborated on. And she sadly died of cancer in 1997. There's not really all that much to say about the rest of the more prominently featured actors in this film, is there? Because Mary Young, who played Elizabeth Vance, and Barbara Wilson, who plays Mary, are scarcely any credits at all on their IMDb, and and some of the smaller roles are of little interest to the Jallo fan. There are two of the sort of minor characters that maybe deserves to be mentioned at least. So one of the actors in a smaller role is Harriet Medden, who plays Sheena. The American actress Harriet Medden had a fruitful career in the film industry, appearing in nearly 50 productions, including several Italian films in the 1960s. Uh, she often appeared in films in very minor unnamed roles, typically as an elderly woman. 
Um, interestingly, in the 1980s, she had a very small role as a customer in James Cameron's Terminator. Earlier on in her career, Imagine worked with Mario Bava on, on three separate occasions in the neighbour segment of Black Sabbath in 1963, as well as The Whip and the Body in the same year in Blood and Black Lace in 1964. Um, she had experience in other gothic steep productions, such as Fred as the Terror of Dr. Hitchcock and Los Petra in the early 1960s. So it was a genre she was somewhat well-versed in, which probably accounts for her casting here in The Murder Clinic, um, playing a role that she was often typecast as. Um, in addition to her work as an actress, Medin was a proficient dialogue coach, and coached many actors in the 1950s, including Gina Lollobrigida, um, who she also worked for as a personal assistant. Mm. And alongside dialogue coaching, Medin also dubbed several Italian films into English. And she was married to production designer Gaston Medin, who was one of the most prolific Italian production designers of his era, um, working with the likes of Tosica, Rizzi and Soldati. And finally, we thought we'd mention Fred as well, who's played by Massimo Righi, because if you see the film, you'll recognize, easily recognize him from Black Sabbath as well as um, Barber's Blood and Black Lace. We've discussed the film's context and the figures involved, uh, so let's move on now to the heart of the film and some of the ideas at play and our interpretation of the murder clinic as a gothic shallow. Uh, so there are evidently many elements of the classic gothic horror at play in the murder clinic, and uh, not only in terms of its gothic Victorian setting, but also in regards to the themes at play, um, which are typical of the genre, with its roots very much based in the gothic fiction of the 18th century. One of the most prevalent aspects of which is the central idea of a character who's been disfigured and is subsequently hidden away from view. Then we have the traditional mad scientist character of Dr. Vance who's working away in a treatment to fix the monstrous female's disfigurement so she can once again enter society. And this key Frankenstein-like idea of a man trying to play God attempting to make headway with new scientific discovery um, is very much in the tradition of the Gothic. Vance embodies the role of the egotistical doctor slash scientist who is somewhat of a morally ambiguous character who we're led to believe is Machiavellian in nature. And his faith is not in the divine, but in science. And he's representative of this new scientific age where man finds himself closer to God. I completely agree with you because it's very much in the Gothic traditions with, as you mentioned before, like the, well, it's oil lamps instead of candle holders here, but like the dark hallways and the nightgowns and somebody hidden in the attic and family secrets and stuff. As we briefly mentioned, there are some interesting similarities with Georges Franjou's Eyes Without a Face with a surgeon who's trying to restore the looks of the disfigured family member but it turns out to be quite a clever misdirection by Gestaldi because when you first watch this film you sort of or at least I felt fairly confident that that's where it was going to go and you sort of expect the the doctor to kill off these people and take skin grafts and stuff but nothing really comes to that yeah no yeah i completely get you um it does play up to that um idea of you know the mad scientist we see him experimenting on a guinea pig and doing all horrible things to him um so we kind of assume that that's the way that the film is going to go and there's going to be some sort of climactic payoff where we see the fruits of his research and his killings and it's all for this greater purpose but obviously as you say it's misdirection because it goes in a completely other direction and it's nothing really to do with Vance or the women in the attic it's to do with something else entirely and it's a film that's very it throws out quite a few red herrings really the mental hospital setting alone allows for there to be several suspects and sort of each of them more mad than the than the next one yeah and it's quite interesting because the murder clinic itself is a place where the mentally ill are sent for treatment and to be observed under the watchful eye of the staff and as a result we have a cast of eclectic characters who embody many of the archetypes of madness and the way that these manifest range from the harmless with the old lady uh, with her stuffed cat that no one's allowed to touch, yeah. um, who she believes to be real, to the violent with the schizophrenic behaviour of Fred. Um, so it creates quite a volatile, claustrophobic atmosphere, um, which makes the murder clinic feel quite unsafe. And as you say, like anybody could be the culprit, anything could happen. Um, and we see that in the scene with Giselle and Fred, um, anyone could burst into um, the room in, at any minute and do harm. Yeah. Yeah, because it's quite interesting because we have the, the character of Mary, the new nurse who comes in. I thought, you know, when, when she was presented that she would be a lot more uh, pivotal to the film story, but really she doesn't have much to do with the main events, I would say. No, I, I completely agree. Yeah, and then we have Giselle who comes in and we think, oh, who's this? And she kind of becomes the female leader of the story, if you will. And then again, we see her off, so that's the end of her character. So there's this playing a bit with the characters and we never really know whose story it is or who's going to 
take a central role in the unraveling of the mystery, which is rather nice. And obviously, if you watch Ali, then you know that Vance probably isn't going to be the villain of the piece. But then bringing in those gothic elements perhaps makes you question that. You might think it is going to go in a more gothic direction than it does. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the other things I, I really like about Castaldi because he's not... It wouldn't be the last time where he, where he made out a character to be something that they wasn't. They seem to be a much more pivotal character than they actually are. And I really enjoy that being sort of thrown off a bit and not really knowing what you can expect out of these people. But I think in terms of characterization, if you compare this to his later films, to the Jolly of the 1970s, I think the characters here are sort of less characters and more pawns in making sure that the mystery unfolds than they would be later on. Do you think that's fair to say or do you not? Yeah, no, I completely agree. I think that is very much the case here. And we don't really need all this exposition of who the people are or the way that they relate to the main characters is quite different because you said for the most part, patients or staff not as prominent as like other side characters that you might see in a traditional kind of 1970s yeah. so despite there being this certain amount of misdirection of will any of these people be culpable it doesn't seem likely because someone like Fred and the person that he is you know, we already know that he's a violent schizophrenic so he's probably not going to be um, the architect of what's going on here yeah. and I think yeah there's a bit of comedy almost you know like the old lady stroking her cat I think that is you know there's a comedic element there isn't there so again some of these characters are as you say pawns but they're also you you know, just not window dressing, but it's just to inject a bit of humour or whatever into the mix. Yeah. One of my favourites is, of course, Mr. Bird, who you never get to see on screen because they just refer to him seeing that he sleeps all the time and he won't present a problem to Mary, the nurse. <laughs> Yeah, just to make right. up the patients. Yeah, just to get the impression that there's more people in this clinic than is perhaps presented yeah. on screen. As you mentioned, they, this film is quite interesting because it's a transition between the gothic horror films and the Jallo. And there are quite a few tropes here that you would associate with post-Argenta films than the than the By the Pool or the, the Yacht Jally of the 1960s. Obviously, the hooded figures stalking the dark corridors and brandishing a straight racer. There's a wonderful shot where the killer is grabbing a weapon from the surgical tools that's laid out in red velvet and that would that would maybe not become a staple but at least it was commonly reoccurred through throughout the 1970s and turned up in films such as Bird with a Crystal Plumage and Death Carries a Cane and later on in Nonosono as well. Yeah, and I think, um, like is often the case, uh, the gothic horror in this instance uh, may have been infused with elements of Bava's Blood and Black Lace and echoes of the German crimi film um, in order to bring something new to the genre, which at the time had reached saturation point. And we can see that this happened with the shadow itself in the mid-1970s when it was crossed with new emerging genres such as uh, the popular Italian police film in an attempt to give the genre a new lease of life. So yeah, we're seeing this hybrid um, to try and inject something new. It's trying to bring something different to genre that's perhaps fairly tired yeah. and has run its course. And although the murder clinic is predominantly gothic in terms of its uh, visual stylings and some of its thematic ideas, uh, we can also see how some of the ideas presented here translate into the more contemporary style shadow um, Madness, jealousy, rivalry, female neurosis are all present here um, and in the likes of Castaldi's 1970 Shiley. So we can see that the gap is bridged here in, in, a certain, in certain respects, even though it feels very gothic initially. Yeah. Um, and there's lots of similarities actually here with um, Slaughter Hotel, I thought. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is very similar as a film. Um, obviously, that was 1971. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's interesting that this film borrows quite a lot from Frida's like, 1960s uh, gothic horrors or 1950s uh, work. And then, not that I'm saying that this influences film necessarily, but then we see yeah film come out after this by him which feels very similar to it and again yeah the fusing of the gothic with the shallow in that film for a lot of people who struggle with the 60s jolly because they don't feel like the, the post argento films i think there's quite a lot that you would recognize here even though it's a is a fairly early giallo because this follows a bit more in the footsteps of Blood and Black Lace than, for example, Umberto Lenz's films would do. Yeah, that's an interesting point, actually. I think maybe people might be put off by the murder clinic because I think instantly they would hear that, well, not I'm not saying that everyone would find this, but you would might maybe hear about its historical setting and feel that's at odds with the giallo that you're familiar yeah. with. But yeah, it, like you say, actually, this is probably more true to that giallo than something like So Sweet, So Perverse, which kind of veers off into something else. Yeah. Should we talk a little bit about the relationship as well because it seems like Dr. Vance has got uh, either a relationship or falls in love with pretty much every woman that he sees on screen here. Like many of the gothic films had an atmosphere of like pent-up sexuality and in some cases quite perverted sexuality and it's quite relatively chaste here but the good doctor is very much a a ladies man and who first falls in love with his 
wife's sister and later on where he's certainly interested in both Giselle and in in Mary. Yeah, he seems to just kind of fall in love with any woman that <laughs> ends up in the clinic, doesn't yeah. he? As you say, like he's very much involved. Well, we find that from the flashbacks that he was in love with Elizabeth's um, sister. And then we have Nurse Mary comes in and then we think that's going to be some, there's going to be something there. And then Giselle appears and then he's all, all about her. So he's chasing her. So yeah, it's quite interesting. I guess, again, that helps with misdirection, doesn't yeah. it? We're not really sure what's going to happen. And then we are somewhat suspicious of the female characters, especially Giselle, um, due to how she's presented to us. Yeah, yeah, pretty much everybody apart from apart from Mary is made out to have some like a dark secret or being involved in some kind of shady activity. Which in itself makes you wonder about what, how Mary's involved, how she because she is set up as this maybe the main female protagonist at the start of the yeah. film and so you do wonder if something else is going to come out but again it's pretty much a red herring isn't it she's inconsequential really to the to the film's plot yeah. um obviously she's involved in the ending but not really in any i wouldn't say any interesting way i thought we could go back to the flashback scene where dr vance tells mary about how laura arrived and how she and robert fell in love because i found that scene quite interesting i'm not quite sure how you read it because the first time i watched it i found those scenes quite cheesy and sort of quite melodramatic but looking at them again I find them quite interesting because they're lit in a, in a completely different way from the rest of the film they've got sort of a really warm glow to them or rather than playing out as as a really cheesy love affair to me it seems like they're Dr Vance's memories of happier times and the way that he interacts with Laura they're playing and as I said it, it's happy and joyous to the point of cheesiness but in Robert's memories these are like really happy times and they may feel exaggerated in false but that's what memories look like when when looking back so i'm thinking that this is this is his view on how it happened and the sort of the bad things tend to fade and in robert memories even his wife looks on happy as his relationship with her sister develops into love and i'm not sure if that's a correct reading or if if he just went down a really melodramatic road here but what do you think no i certainly think you have uh, have a point there i mean it's interesting you use the word melodramatic because sometimes we think of these this kind of gothic romanticism is as quite melodramatic but i think like you say the way that the that scene is shot and the joy that vance obviously feels and this warmth and vivaciousness that um laura exudes certainly points to her really being i suppose his true love or the one that he really does care about and brings him this great joy and sense of purpose and that's contrasted so nicely with the rest of the scenes where things are rather bleak yeah. and dark and this sense of unhappiness permeates throughout the film and we don't get the impression that him and elizabeth have a happy marriage at no. all it's interesting that you thought it was cheesy at first and then reevaluated because i think yeah it's supposed to be probably seen as this tender scene or at least that's how i read it i think it's supposed to hammer home how tragic the story of laura really is that in itself the scene with laura is a really really effective scene as well when they're at that building site yeah i mean it's probably one of the most memorable memorable moments of the film isn't yeah. it because we know about the monstrous woman in the attic we've seen her face we've been repulsed by her but then this is the kind of moment where we understand what's come to be and it's just it's just a rather nasty little scene yeah you see her as this vivacious attractive young woman in the flashbacks and then it, that just highlights the awfulness of the fate that's befell her and what, what i quite like about that scene is it involves the construction of the clinic um so this pivotal moment in the film which explains who the woman in the attic is um and justification for the crimes that very much links back to the film setting and it feels like the construction was this very happy time like you say this is a joyful time for him he was he felt he was falling in love with um laura and then you see the kind of product like after that it all goes wrong and the clinic seems like this really horrible place and there was so much promise yeah. it's one of those scenes that sticks in your mind and even if you haven't seen this for for quite a while i think you probably remember that scene even if the other stuff has faded so if i may i'm just gonna delve into the character of laura um, while we're talking about her and like we touched upon uh, laura is an example um, of the monstrous feminine this is a well-regarded concept in the study of horror cinema um, coined by the academic barbara creed um, and this idea pertains to so many films in the pantheon of horror so i'm not going to really get into the theory here um, but horror cinema predominantly paints women as victims as we all know uh, so in creed's the monstrous feminine uh, she conceptualizes women as victims in horror films and examines female characters who are often othered um, 
that are depicted as monsters and something to be feared. And that obviously ties into various notions surrounding womanhood. And this notion of the monstrous women or being is very much um, part and parcel of Gothic fiction as well. Gothic fiction would often grapple with ideas pertaining to changing societal thoughts, um, expressing anxieties of the era. And the murder clinic itself is set in Victorian England, a time period where huge societal changes were underfoot and fiction often reflected these neuroses about um, changing society. Uh, so if I go back to the idea of the monstrous women in horror cinema, the disfigured appearance of Laura is perhaps reflective of the ideas that society has in relation to the appearance of women and their purpose, their desirability, and as well as cultural fears surrounding aging and the older women. And we see these fears expressed by Elizabeth, and in many ways, Laura is a physical manifestation of her fears. And I find it quite interesting that she's kept hidden away in the attic because, of course, the attic or upper hidden away floors or wings are such a classic element of Gothic fiction. And this idea that you're keeping your biggest secret, your biggest fear locked away in the recesses of your home and um, in your mind. And it makes me think of things like uh, the picture of Dorian Gray, um, but we could even draw parallels here with Frankenstein or the Phantom of the Opera and alongside numerous other texts of the period. I might be going off track a bit here, but um, often in discussions surrounding horror cinema, there's talk about the attractiveness or desirability of the actresses that appear in these films. I and mean, that's always been somewhat the case. Um, but what's quite interesting for me as a woman is that you'll often come across reviews or discussions surrounding these films where people mark them down for the perceived lack of desirability of the actresses featured or the lack of flesh on display. And also I'm not denying here that the attractiveness of men or women doesn't come into play with people's appreciation of film, um, but it's quite interesting in the murder clinic that Laura's worth here has been eradicated because she no longer serves her purpose as an object of beauty or desirability. In the flashbacks of Laura, we see her as a beautiful woman who charms um, Dr. Vance, um, she's the embodiment of beauty and grace um, and she seems to have a lot going for her like as we said he fell in love with her because she's so wonderful however Laura's disfigurement uh, renders her useless and a subject of shame um, she's locked away in the attic because she's hideous she's too ugly to be seen and she's a million miles away um, from the attractive women of the clinic she's perceived perhaps as more damaged than those in the clinic who are considered at least worthy of treatment and can be out and about and be seen other than Mr. Bird <laughs> um, yet she's condemned to be hidden away and is a burden um, and it's very much a case of what does Laura have to offer if she does not possess beauty and is this grotesque figure and it's a question that can be extended also towards her sister and um, what purpose does a woman of this age serve if she's unable to be married off or to be seen as a worthy prize for a prospective husband and historically of course this would be the case but um, looking at this film through modern eyes or perhaps even the eyes of someone in the 1960s um, it does raise some questions about how women are perceived and how they are often ostracised um, for not conforming to the feminine ideal you can extend these ideas to the um, character of Giselle, um, a seemingly well-to-do society women who possesses this criminal streak and again it's a testament to Gastaldi's writing which often has more nuanced female characters and um, there's a duality in these characters um, Elizabeth the loving wife is revealed to be the killer and as I've said um, Giselle has a vicious streak of her own um, so women are very much front and centre in this story and aren't always as they appear to be which is another classic uh, Jalo trope when you think about it. And I appreciate that in the reveal of the identity of the person who resides in the upper floors, uh, we get a shot of Laura from behind with her long blonde hair before we have the reveal, which um, reveals her monstrous form, again depicting that duality and um, showcasing how we're often deceived about someone's true form. Um, so to go back to what we were saying earlier, um, yeah, it's certainly interesting to see these ideas about the monstrous female present themselves in the murder clinic. And in my opinion, it goes to show why horror cinema is often so appealing to women. Um, often these ideas pertaining to the monstrous female or the othering of women um, feel somewhat familiar and relatable. And of course, that can be the case for men as well. But these ideas relating to one's worth as a woman in relation to their perceived attractiveness um, is certainly more relevant than ever. And of course, it's a theme we see time and time and again in the shadow um, in horror cinema at large. In fact, we've already touched upon this in our podcast on the crimes of the black cat. So yeah, I find it certainly interesting to see how different people engage with ideas of female beauty on screen uh, whether they're repulsed by a female monster and we're just someone they don't find aesthetically pleasing. These sorts of conversations are, for me, what really keeps cinema fresh and how we get new perspectives and interpretations about film. And that's why I'm always so happy to hear female voices in an area that's often been the domain of older men. Um, yeah, so it's just about getting these varied perspectives and looking at film in different ways. But yeah, the female characters here, there's certainly a lot to be said about them. And there's certainly a lot to be said about Laura and her disfigurement and what happens to her as a woman and how her womanhood is taken away from her as, as a result of the accident. Yeah, like you mentioned in Crimes of the Black Cat, it was um, Silver Kashina who'd been disfigured and, and her worth as a woman had been sort of questioned by herself and, and partly by her, her man. But in this case, it's um, 
is Laura being disfigured and Elizabeth, the wife who's doing the punishing, punishing her sister and all the other women who, in order to protect her man. A sibling rivalry as well, as old as Cain and Abel, and also something that returns in a few jally as well with the Red Queen kills seven times. Also featured a um, sibling rivalry uh, between a dark head and a blonde sister in a gothic setting. And it's, it's a nice, um, it's a nice theme to be explored in these films. Isn't yeah. It? Nice to see it touched upon. Female rivalry is always quite good for picking. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> There's always a lot to be said about it. I feel like we talked about this like not that long ago, and I'm trying to think what it was in relation to as well female rivalry in a film. It was Door into Darkness. There was we talked about female rivalry. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, I always think it's quite a fascinating subject. Um, sisters pitted against each other. Yeah, because you don't tend to see that all that much with men, do you? Not in terms of no, sibling it, rivalry. I can't think of any off the top of my head now. Not like the jealousy between two brothers who forces one of them to kill. It's almost more like with men, I suppose, competitive, isn't yeah. it? Maybe in a professional sense or a sports sense, but not so much, you know, this idea of competing for someone's affection. I mean, I'm sure people that are listening to this will have loads of examples, but I don't think it's seen as so much with brothers as it is with sisters. No, no I agree with that. But it's interesting that obviously this is how her jealousy manifests, isn't it? Um, she's so jealous of her sister that she does this horrible thing to her. Yeah. And this is how she takes her out is to destroy her, her beauty, which she sees as a threat. And I think, yeah, women are often going back to, you know, how we see women in film or women in society. Women are pitted against each other all the time based on their appearance. Yeah. I think anyone that has a sister, you know that there's always comments made about <laughs> the attractiveness of what one sister or the other. And yeah, it's obviously how this manifests to the extreme with one sister disfiguring the other <laughs> to, to be on, on top. Because you just feel like this is something that probably simmered for years and years. Her sister was always the prettier one, always the more vivacious one. And it kind of drove her mad that her husband, the one thing that she had, was then taken away from her, like the final straw. Yeah, it certainly makes sense. First her punishing her sister. And then obviously when when she sees, Elizabeth sees Dr. Vans arrive with Giselle, she goes, well, go on seducing every girl that comes in here. So you can tell that she's she's lived with this frustration for a while and it's not the first time it's happened. Absolutely. Yeah. She was almost powerless. But her way of taking power is by becoming this killer and solving the problem for herself. Yeah. But this is something that I might be clutching at straws a bit with this, but it does tie in slightly to our conversation. And it might be because I'm Scottish. Um, but what was particularly interesting to me in the murder clinic um, is an early scene in which Nurse Mary uh, reads a book to a mute patient about Mary Stewart, a.k.a. Mary Queen of Scots and yeah perhaps it's somewhat of a tenuous link between the sisters of Elizabeth and Laura and cousins Mary Stuart and Elizabeth I um, but there are some parallels here between the women and we have Elizabeth and Elizabeth I uh, women who are somewhat cynical and calculating and then we have Mary and Laura who both possess this feminine charm and charisma and like with the famous queens in the murder clinic we have this apparent rivalry between the women and uh, more so Elizabeth's side um, who's clearly very jealous of her sister and her magnetism and of course, Elizabeth, like Elizabeth, uh, shows great treachery towards her sister, although obviously in this case, uh, Laura doesn't die at the hands of her sister, although she very well could have. And obviously that's a very simplistic way of looking at history. I know I've just like condensed it down to a very basic uh, reading. Um, yeah, but it's a really I, I interesting... It's a really interesting reading. Yeah, because I, I do feel the inclusion of the book on Mary Stewart and that red passage has some significance. I mean, you certainly get the impression it was featured for a reason and it's prominently featured. You even see the book with Mary Stewart on yeah. it. And I think on a, on a more simplistic note, uh, featuring the story of Mary Stewart brings this macabre element into the film, uh, setting a certain tone. And I would have personally enjoyed just a bit more of a vert nod to Mary Stewart, but um, I thought it was quite a nice touch to mention that bit of British history in the film, seeing it's set in the UK. Yeah, Giselle's quite an interesting character and there's a there's a slight difference here in between the different dubs because in depending on which language you watch the film in the man that she's in the carriage with is either a companion or her husband yeah she's not the damsel in distress that she presents herself as the fact that we see her creeping um on dr vance and then she lies down and pretends she's you know so distressed or so fatigued that she needs rescuing almost which is far from the case yeah. but um I don't, I don't know about you but for me personally i prefer the idea of her the, the man that she's with in the carriage being her husband just because i think it works well as kind of almost foreshadowing of the killer's reveal yeah no so um, do i it seems to say more about her character than than her just letting go of some coach driver uh, or some other kind of companion yeah i think that would make more sense it feels like why would she kill her you know coach driver really yeah. 
or companion it feels like a husband you could make certain conclusions from that but it just maybe another side of the film that would have been nice if there was a bit more like if it was a bit of a clearer picture of what was going on there yeah. that's a great scene isn't it i really like that yeah it's a very good I love scene. How atmospheric it is with the wind and all the leaves blowing and the way she offs them and then that beautiful um like you almost see the orange style sunset when she comes over the hill yeah and discover Dr. Vance. I mean, that's really well done. Just beautifully lit. I mean, the whole film is like incredibly lit. Yeah. Um, but that bit particularly stood out for me. And obviously Giselle's downfall is her curiosity, isn't it? Because like with her curiosity, with yeah, when she spies Dr. Vance uh, getting rid of bodies. Um, yeah, of Janie, who I suppose he probably had an affair with, uh, cons- considering she's been punished by, by Elizabeth. Yeah, and that's the conclusion that we can draw there, isn't it? Yeah. But yeah, it's quite nice that she's snipping on that and she thinks her snipping is going to be an advantage. Perhaps she can blackmail or, you know, gain something from it. But then in actual fact, it all goes a bit wrong for her and ends up, yeah, not, it doesn't end too well, does it? No. And it's a very effective scene, obviously, when, when she finds the sister in the attic, even though some, I mean, the makeup effects aren't fantastic, but I think it's an effective scene when she comes up. It's sort of slightly reminiscent of um, of Phenomena. Absolutely, yeah, there certainly are. Um, yeah, people, so somebody who's so horrified by what they see that it kind of sends them into hysteria, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. And speaking of Argento, there's a nice shot of hanging laundry, which sort of reminds me a little bit of of Suspiria. Yeah, no, I know this, this, that's a nice shot with the different coloured sheets. Yeah, yeah it made me think of Suspiria as well. I also thought that um, scene where Janie's running through the field is a bit similar to Suspiria, just in the way it's... Or I suppose you could even say Tenebrae, but it just, I don't know, made me think of Suspiria in the dark where she's just running. Full yeah, I agree. Bellicum. I know it's a bit more like blood and black lace um, on the whole, that scene, but just that one moment in it made me think of Suspiria. Yeah, when she runs through the woods, absolutely. And then when she comes out and stumbles onto that that sort of fountain, that's more, looks like she's landed on the blood and black lace set, really. Yeah. So we've touched upon these red herrings as well with Ivan dropping the straight racer and the, the Doctor and Sheena with, with their experiments and burying Janie and Mark being schizophrenic and, and stuff. But as you said, in the end, it turns out that it's Elizabeth who's who's responsible for the killings. And um, it's an ending that if somebody said to me that falling to their death is a trope in Jally, I wouldn't necessarily have thought that it was, but there's been a few now. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, in my notes as well, I've got, she just joins the many female killers in the genre that find themselves being flung out of a window, or they either throw themselves out the window or, yeah, yeah. or flung out of the window. Um, yeah, like, I wouldn't have thought of it as a trope either, but it certainly seems to be that way. Yeah, much more prevalent than I thought it was. And, and in this case, of course, it's sort of mirroring the fall of Laura falling into the the pit with a quick line as well yeah definitely it's almost like these two pivotal scenes which depict the downfall of each sister yeah Yeah, so it's definitely mirroring there between the two which again gives credence to our whole rivalry and this idea of really being a film about two sisters and their relationship with each other yeah um, Should we say something about the stalking sequences? Yeah. Because there are quite a few scenes of the killer stalking in the corridors and you can see them, black gloves on show and straight races and stuff, but there aren't any really sort of well-developed set pieces here. It feels like he's struggling a little bit with the, with the set pieces. The atmosphere is on the whole really, really good, but those looking for really effective murder scenes are probably will f- probably feel a little bit let down yeah it's not a film for big set pieces like you say they're very atmospheric and well done um you know beautifully shot beautifully lit but on the whole um nothing really i wouldn't say the scenes really stay in your mind i wouldn't say that they represent that um, association with the genre for set piece killings and really um grisly killings it's quite like you said that the sexuality is quite chaste, but I'd say the violence is also rather yeah. chaste in this film. Yeah. And like I said, one of the most memorable moments, I suppose, would be that um, killing of Janie that happens. I suppose that's the one we, the what killing that's closest to a set piece killing. Yeah. But they sort of all pale in comparison to to the reveal and to Laura's fall into the lion pit. I think. I mean, those are the moments yeah. that you remember. None of the set pieces really stand out. I think that the bit that stood out for me though with that um, the fountain 
set piece like Janie's killing is that the killer when they go over to her bed they very carefully um, unroll the bed sheets that was quite a tender moment almost it seems like something that's quite womanly to do doesn't yeah. it just the way that the gloves oh, I didn't slowly think unravel that. the sheets it seems quite like a I wouldn't say caring, oh, yeah, gest- no, I um, caring gesture but yeah she folds it down yeah like you say there's a there's there's almost a tender moment there before she before she kills her yeah there's something um, almost quite unusual about that really Uh, so for me, the ending and the motivation behind Elizabeth's crimes aren't the most imaginative, um, but they certainly make sense in the context of the film and the ideas presented to us. Um, the existence of Laura and her affliction is a visceral reminder of Elizabeth's crimes, and yet perhaps there's a reminder to Elizabeth of her own mortality and fading looks. And I think there's a fear that I think she fears that she herself is turning monstrous, and it's also, um, of course, a haunting reminder of her actions. So I think it all does tie up rather nicely. Yeah. I would say, because she is kind of driven insane. Well, I don't know if she's driven insane by what she's done. I wouldn't say insane, but, you know, it kind of seems like her just desserts. What no, but I think, no, I think you're onto something because it's very much in the in line with the fate of Silver Kashina in Crimes of the Black Cat as well, because they just feel like the game is up. And rather than facing the consequences, they just choose to throw themselves to to their own death. Yeah, and they already have this neurosis about the fact that they're disfigured or aging or they feel like their beauty's faded. So it seems like they don't have anything to live for anyway because they've tried so hard to you know, win the affections of the person they love or to try and be a certain way. And it's, it's so exhausting for them that, yeah, it seems like, well, in death, at least that they're free of these pressures that they've put on themselves or this feeling of being not enough or insufficient. It's been quite difficult to find the exact production dates here, but the film was shot in the autumn of 1965 for Interfilm on location in Frascati. As you've mentioned a few times, it was um, beautifully shot by Marcello Maschiocchi as Mark Lane. And Maschiocchi had previously shot mostly historical dramas and science fiction about dozen or so films. He would later go on to shoot Seminole Jello, The Sweet Body of Deborah, as well as The Tropic of Cancer, which is a, another really great looking film, and Reflections in Black. You can sort of feel the blood and black lace kind of inspiration in this, or an inspiration from the horrible Dr. Hitchcock, in that it's well, really well lit, or obviously not as, as good looking as those films, but it's still a, a good looking film, I think. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't feel like it pales in comparison. It feels like it stands up as a a gothic styled um, film in its own right um, which is important and like you said there's obviously this uh, look to it that's reminiscent of blood and black lace and um, with some of the colors that are used in the lighting um, but again it doesn't feel t- it doesn't feel like too close to it it doesn't feel like necessarily really derivative of it in terms no. of the look i said because it's a gothic horror it just echoes you know the gothic horrors that have been before it and so the murder clinic is historically set in morley norfolk in 1870 and like many places in the united kingdom morley and norfolk cover rich supernatural history and whilst i think it's unlikely that gestaldi knew the extent of this i think it's fair to say that the english setting um, was utilized association with the gothic and um, the english countryside and its old manor houses are often romanticized and i think those locations really come to life um, especially when we see giselle creeping around the clinic at night as a side note um in regards to the setting of Morley, uh, there was a documentary that was broadcast by Anglia TV that sought to investigate the, the suspected haunting of Morley Old Hall. And there is a story that the ghost of an old monk haunted the building. And there were also stories about other apparitions and witch trials and all sorts in the neck of the woods. And so I think it's an ideal setting as it invokes all those supernatural gothic style tales, even if there's no supernatural explanation for what happens in this one. I suppose the setting in itself is somewhat unusual when we discuss Shadow, because on the whole, these are contemporary pieces reflecting the trappings of contemporary life. And that's very much the appeal for many and they enjoy the fact that these films are reflective of a changing society and a move away from the traditional Um, and it's interesting to juxtapose that and changing society of the 1960s uh, with the setting here which is the Victorian era and which is very much you know the changing society of England um, at the time. The film was predominantly shot in Villa Parisi which is a well-known location for fans of Italian horror and just horror um, Italian films in general a ridiculous number of films have been shot here so I won't go into all of them but um, yeah very familiar to a lot of people of course in this instance we have a period film taking place here and um, with period adornment so it's rather nice to see a more traditional side to the location um, and also 
also we have the character of Laura who resides in a room upstairs hidden away from the staff and the patients. When we relocate horror to a more contemporary setting and we find these traditional spaces are updated or altered to reflect uh, new modern cityscapes. Um, the country manor is replaced by the apartment, basements become underground car park and the wilderness is steadily concrete and walkways. Um, so it's quite nice to look at a shadow that has a more gothic setting um, because it makes you think about the importance and effect of setting in a film like this. There's just some rather nice costumes in the film as well. Some lovely interiors. Uh, the wallpaper in Elizabeth's bedroom is actually really similar to the wallpaper in my living room. Obviously mine's <laughs> is a bit cheaper. <laughs> um, just something I noticed. Um, and I particularly like the use of the colour red in this film and we see it in quite a lot of the different outfits from um, Giselle's lovely tartan uh, fitted jacket, Vance's velvet yeah. smoking jacket. And then we see that in the book as well, um, the Mary Stewart book. And then we've already talked about the greens and purples that you see throughout the film. So it, it does utilise colour well and I said it's got a very sumptuous feel to it. It really ramps up that gothic element with the costumes and the um, you know, the decadent interiors of the rooms. The score for the film was written by Francesco De Marci under the pseudonym Frank Mason and I'd say it's a fairly traditional gothic score. It's got a sort of dark melancholy feel to it and there are plenty of suspense themes for walking around the dark and deserted corridors at night. Sticking out somewhat because of the use of the throbbing bass line making it sound a little bit more modern. Mario Bava liked the score so much that he decided to recycle the cue Verso la Speranza in his film Kill Baby Kill which was released later on in 1966. The film was granted a censorship visa on February 19th, 1966 with an 18 certificate and it was released in March 1966. The film didn't do brilliantly and made 83 million lira at the box office, which is quite mediocre. It was released in the US as part of a triple bill under the title Revenge of the Living Dead, together with Kill Baby Kill, which was retitled Curse of the Living Dead, and Malenka, which was retitled Fangs of the Living Dead. And after the wide success of Dario Dento's The Bird with a Crystal Plumage, many 1960s jally were re-released in theatres to meet the public demand for Jallo. This was the case with the murder clinic as well. During the time period since the film had been made, Bill Berger had undergone a personal tragedy. He'd appeared in a string of successful Western films after the murder clinic, Face to Face, Sartana, Sabata, in the horror film Ombra Roventi, alongside his wife and Barber's Five Dolls for an August Moon. But on August 5th, 1970, the House of Angels, the villa where Berger and um, his wife Carol was staying in Proiano on the Amalfa coast was raided by the police as part of a huge operation targeting foreigners who were suspected of using or trafficking drugs and all the inhabitants and guests were committed to insane asylums near Naples for their drug use. Carol, who'd already had bouts of ill health before being locked up, began suffering of abdominal pains and her health declined while in prison. In October, she became so ill that she was rushed to the hospital and operated on, and Bill was taken to the hospital to see her two days later, and he got to visit his wife for five minutes, the first time he'd seen her for two months. And when he next saw her a few weeks later, she was in a coma, and she passed away on October 14th, 1970. It was quite difficult to find out if the reason for her death was because she was so unwell or if it was due to negligence or mistreatment and the reasons were somewhat unclear but her death resulted in, in inquiries and Berger remained in prison for a further six months before he was acquitted for a lack of evidence of the marijuana that was found in the house and he was released in March 1971 and tastelessly enough this tragedy was used in the marketing for the re-release of the film with a tagline William Berger, guilty or innocent, alluding to Berger's previous incarceration. It's absolutely staggering, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's such poor taste that it's unbelievable. Berger would return to acting and he would go on to appear in My Dear Killer, as well as several Jess Franco films during his career. And he acted up until his death in 1993, 65 years old. And you should probably mention as well, he was the stepfather of Katja Berger and not the father. He got married to her mother following the death of Carol. They were sort of somewhat related, but he wasn't a father, as many people would, would probably assume. Okay. So that was a tragic experience that he went through, obviously. Yeah, rather fascinating, tragic life, isn't it? Yeah, locking them up in a mental facility seems quite um, far removed from how you'd look at it now. But there we are, a different time.
well, if you're wanting to look at Italian horror and thriller cinema in a broader context than the Jali of the 1970s, then the Murder Clinic is essential viewing. It's a great example of the intersection between the Jali and the Gothic horror during a period of Italian genre cinema where we're witnessing the decline of the more overt Gothic horror in favour of the more contemporary leanings of the Jali. The Murder Clinic is an attempt to combine new emerging styles with the traditional, and whilst by no means as proficient as the Gothic horrors of Bava and Frida and the other directors that we've mentioned, the Murder Clinic is still infused with a Gothic sensibility that mirrors some of the more successful films of the era. It's got enough elements of the shallow to keep fans of the genre happy and it also offers something a little different for those wanting to explore the genre beyond the confines of the modernist stylings. And of course, those who enjoy Blood and Black Lace will appreciate the apparent influence of Baba's film here and some of the familiar faces from this film. I, I completely agree with you. I think there's a lot to be enjoyed here. And again, as we mentioned before, Gastaldi has a clever script, even though it's not quite as developed as, as his later scripts would be. But the the misdirection with the eyes without a face, and it's interesting to track the, as you said, the progression of elements from gothic to giallo means that there's quite a lot to recommend about this film really yeah and although like you mentioned libido earlier which is another highly recommended uh, film for kind of examining the gothic and the giallo and i still think this is one although not as good as libido is still it's worth it's worth seeking out because i do think it bridges that gap between the giallo of the 1970s like you say there's a lot of visuals here that we see later on um, and other films, like you said, like Argento and The Bird of the Crystal Plumage with that red velvet sheet with the murder weapons yeah. and other things like that. So it's quite nice to see some of those images in an earlier film. And even though it's quite gothic in its, in its appearance, it does tie in to those films. There's really no excuse not to seek this one out either because it, it's easily available on Blu-ray from Germany's Film Art in an English-friendly edition. As a matter of fact, our friends at Film Art have been kind enough to give us a copy of the film. So we thought we'd give it to one of our listeners all you have to do is just write a post on either Facebook or Instagram or Twitter and let us know which of Ernesto Gastaldi's film is your favourite and just tag us with hashtag FragmentSpot and we'll announce a lucky winner in the next episode. For those of you who have pledged us via Patreon, our next episode will be part two of our examination into Dario Argento's 1973 television series Farai, Door into Darkness. This time we'll be focusing on Dario Argento's Eyewitness and Mario Foglietti's The Doll as well as offering our thoughts on the series as a head on over to patreon.com forward slash fragments pod for more details and if you want to reach us on social media you can follow us on facebook slash fragments pod you can find us on instagram as fragments pod or you can reach us on twitter either rachel underscore nisbet or senior ward or you can mail us on fragments pod at gmail.com and if you enjoy the show we'd love it if you could leave us a review on um, itunes um, or give us a star rating and we've had some really lovely reviews this month. So we'd just like to thank Johnny Queen, uh, Vortici Mortale and Pictomancer for their incredibly kind words. We do really appreciate it. So thank you so much for taking the time to um, write those reviews for us. Yeah, thank you. Those reviews really made my day. And as always, in the background, you can hear our fantastic theme music by the Osarks. You can find their music at castleosarks.com. So please check them out. Thank you once again for listening to the show. Uh, we hope you enjoyed our take on the murder clinic. Keep an eye out on social media for details about March's episode. As always, patrons will get an exclusive reveal in February's bonus episode. Um, so all we have left to say is thank you and good night. <laughs> <laughs>